Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, so if you're just joining us, and you may be, uh, we've been in a series. This is actually, believe it or not, the seventh installment of this series. Um, so we're a quarter of the way done. Um, <laughs> No, not really. Uh, we're getting close. So last week, I told you that I had heard this illustration. Um, uh, Tim Keller mentioned a book called, by uh, Alexander, or Archibald Alexander called Thoughts on Spiritual Experience. So I grabbed it. Uh, and remember, we used this picture right here, which he uses in that, in that book. It talks about your heart being like wax, that as it gets closer to the Holy Spirit and the fire, starts to melt. And when it melts, it becomes uh, uh, like, a, like a seal. It becomes um, moldable. And so you have this seal, uh, which is the truth, that just sort of impresses upon uh, that, that heart and transforms it, changes its, its shape, you know, reorients it. And so... Uh, we're talking about transforming the heart and reshaping it and the truth of God coming in and reorienting your heart completely. What we're talking about is grabbing the heart. Um, there's a, he, he, after he gives that illustration, he makes this comment right here. We had insinuated it many times last week, but here's what he says. Thus it is found that nothing tends to more to confirm and elucidate the truths contained in the word than an inward experience of their efficacy on the heart. In other words, nothing makes the truth of God's word more real than when it actually grabs a hold of your heart. It's one thing for you to grasp the truth of it. So uh, what he's saying is, is, you know, you have the heart, but you also have this brain, and it, it can get in there, but it never reaches here. And so what we're talking about is how does the truth of God get in here so that it can change our lives? And I think he's right. I don't think that it, that's why we said there's nothing more important than when God's truth reaches here in you. So, so we're talking about it grabbing the heart. I'm reading Philippians 3 in my quiet time, and there's a passage in there. Remember, he says in chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, I am reaching, I am trying to grab a hold of, take a hold of Christ because he has grabbed a hold of me. He has grabbed me. And that's what we're talking about here, where you're gripped by him. As opposed to you just grabbing. Uh, and by that I mean it gives your heart new desires. When we talk about a transformed heart, we're talking about this, new desires. It wants to do new things. New wants. Um, it replaces insecurities that you have in your heart. You live with a lot of insecurities. But when the truth of God's word comes in, it changes those. You should feel that transformation. 
uh, because that's where God's looking. By the way, God's looking here. He's not looking here. Second Chronicles 16.9, one of my favorite verses. He says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro in the earth, looking to come alongside and strengthen those whose hearts are completely his. Just think of that. Where's God looking? He's looking at hearts. Wants those that are completely his. And he'll come alongside that heart and he'll strengthen it and he'll do things with it. Because with that heart, he can trust it. And he wants to come alongside and do great things with it and with you. So a few months ago, I read this book called You Are What You Love by James K. A. Smith. Subtitled The Power of Spiritual Habit or The Spiritual Power of Habit. And in it, and I truth is I've been wrestling with this book and I I can't get it out of my head and no matter how much I've read past it I keep coming back to it and wrestling with the truth of it and he writes in there this statement right here Uh, let's see if I can find it here it is to be human is to have a heart you can not love you have a heart you're going to love something so the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate The question is what you will love is ultimate. What will it be? And you are what you love. So this is him using words that we've been using, talking about love and saying, listen, at the end of the day, you do what you want and what you love. You have cravings and desires. And at the end of the day, when you did it, that's what you do. You do it because you love it. You want it. So he says, your fundamental mode of orientation to the world is love. Your loves drive you. And if your love, if you love something that isn't ultimate, in other words, doesn't have the substance to be loved in an ultimate sense, then you end up driving yourself crazy. And we'll see. Use an illustration, and I'll give you here, uh, on temptation. So he says, uh, let's say you're presented with a temptation. You perceive it, generally speaking, you'll perceive it as an, it'll come into your brain or your, to your mind, and you'll perceive it as an intellectual uh, reality. And temptation, temptation then seems to you like an idea. Uh, so you think about making a conscious choice. I've got an idea in my head, I've got an option in my head. Now, if your brain is all that matters in whether or not you do it, if your brain is all that matters... Then and you're just a thinking thing, he says, uh, then you're just going to do the smart thing. You're just going to do the smart thing. But how many times have you said, I know I shouldn't have done it? <laughs> how many times have we said that? We all know, so in other words, knowing isn't enough. Why did my brain know what to do, but I didn't do it? There's something else speaking. So my brain knows it, but my heart wanted something else. So he says, you are what you love. In other words, you're going to desire, crave, and you're going to do what's really in your heart. That's, what, that's where the choice actually was made. So he says, what happens is it's not just the temptation. It's not just about bad ideas and wrong decisions. It's about a disordered heart. It's about a heart that's not fully oriented toward God. 
It hasn't been transformed by the truth. That's a pretty profound statement. Let me say something to you about the heart. Uh, The heart doesn't lie. uh, A few weeks ago, actually it was the beginning of December, I went in and got this uh, metabolic test. It tests your heart when you're resting. It tests your heart when you're active. And so um, this guy gave me this test. It took about an hour uh, meeting, initial meeting, and then uh, meeting after. But in the middle was a 30-minute test where you are moving and you're, you, you, you're doing an exercise and you've got to continue to do it at different levels of your heart rate. Now, you've got all these monitors attached to you and, they're, uh, and a breathing machine and it's attached to the machine. It tells you... Uh, it tells you how you're processing oxygen. It tells you where you have inflammation in your body. It tells you um, what levels your heart, like if when you're at this rate, your heart is burning. When you're uh, fat, at this rate, it's burning carbs. At this rate, it's burning, you know, it's anaerobic. So it's really cool to be able to work out. And then what happens is, is uh, when, I, when I turn this heart monitor on, which I wear here, Okay. Then I have my phone with me. Wherever I put my phone, I can actually see. And this is what shows up on it. And it tells me that if I'm in the green area, okay, uh, I'm burning fat. I can do it as long as I want. When I get up to this area here, I'm burning more carbs, less fat. Still burning fat, but starting to burn carbs. As I get into this area here, now I'm burning far more carbs than fat. And then once I cross this line right here, you're in the anaerobic state, which your body is saying, I don't know what I'm burning. I'm just trying to stay alive. That's what the anaerobic state is. I, I don't know what I'm burning. In fact, I may not be burning anything. Uh, I don't know how you're living. That's what your heart is saying when you get here, okay? That's that red zone. So um, one of the things I've noticed with it that you don't know unless you're wearing it. If you're wearing this, because if you've done, like, if you've ever done a row machine or you've ever done a Stairmaster, you can do those machines and you can you can get going and you can start to get tired and you start to ease up, but you can look like you're still working every bit as hard, but your heart rate starts to drop because it knows you're cheating. It knows you've let up. So on a Stairmaster, you know, it's got these rails. Whenever you're pressing on those rails and you're taking some weight off your legs, your heart knows it. And even though you look like you're still dying, (laughs) your heart rate starts to drop because it knows you're cheating. It never lies. Uh, So, um, so the guys in the workout gym, you know, they'll, because I have it, they'll be watching my, they want to see what my heart's doing in the middle of a workout. So they're going, oh, he's dying now. Look at him. He's dying now. Oh, look, he's doing pull-ups. Oh, he's dying now. So they, they're, they're, they're making fun of me while I'm going. And then they played a joke on me this week because one of, the work, one of, the, one of our workouts had double unders in it, which is a jump rope. You got to jump it two times every time. And you just got to go. And I'm not great at them. Uh, I have some friends who are great at them. And I, I've got to really fight for those. I've got to really think. In fact, there's only one spot in the gym I can do them. I can't do them anywhere else except for this one spot. And everybody knows we're doing double unders. Pete's got to be in that spot in order to get through them. And so they know they stress me out. So they were in a workout this week. And at the beginning, they all said, well, let's play a little trick on them. I'm just going to walk up to them. And I'm going to say the word double unders. And let's see what happens to his heart. They just said double unders, and my heart rate started to go up. So it just started going up. Uh, and they were laughing at me, yeah, because they, they, give, they stress me out. They totally stress me. So uh, the heart doesn't lie. Now, well, let's talk about how we transform that heart. 
how that heart changes. Because if you are what you love, okay, then your, your, life, your life's not changing until your heart does, until your loves change. So David says in Psalm 86, let's walk through this. He says this in this paragraph right in the center. There's none like you among the gods. So here's what he's basically saying. When I think of all the things that people's hearts get attached to, things that they worship, things that they love, there's none like you, none who do works like you. And those works are create creation in the Psalms. So he's thinking of all of God's just marvelous creative works. He says, there's no one like you. And then he says, all the nations... You have made, you've made them. So there's still in the creative mode, but now he's talking about people. Even all the people on the earth, they're all going to see it one day. They're going to worship and they're going to glorify your name. And David is envisioning this scene. That one day people will realize just who you are. And he says, why? Because you are great and you do wondrous things. And this word right here in the Psalms, this wondrous is like, uh, they're, they're, they're usually spiritual in nature, special rescues, uh, special little saves God does in the course of a person's life. Unique ones that only you and your experience could ever even talk about of the wonderful things God has done to save you. And then it makes him say, therefore, you alone are God. Only you. are who you are, and can do what you do. Now, intellectually, David gets this, and that's the point of this text. He's just sort of, he's doing what many of us have said before. What in our hearts we've thought, yeah, God is great. There's nobody like him. But David is about to shift because here he's observing, he's sort of declaring this truth. He's going to make a central shift that I'm going to suggest you've got to make, I've got to make in our life. And I'm saying some of us don't, some of us don't know this shift actually exists, and some of us actually avoid it. Some of us don't know there's an option besides just filling my brain with the truth of God's word. So I love sermons, and I love podcasts, and I love listening. Give me more, more, more to listen to. It never really shapes my heart. So David says this shift has to happen. And David knows um, so in your prayer, I'm asking, I mean, is this something I even want? Because here's his shift. Here's the shift. Teach me your way. Okay, so teach it to me. I see it out there. I see these grand things, and I have lofty beliefs and intellectual concepts floating in my head. But I want to actually walk in it. I want to walk in your truth. I don't just want to know it. You see what I'm saying? Some people never get past this, partly because they don't want to. And partly because maybe they don't even know this is an option. Wait a minute, there's a whole other side of the Christian life besides just knowing a bunch of stuff? I want you, he says, to unite my heart To fear your name. That's the way he puts it. In other words, this isn't ever going to happen unless I shift to this heart. 
idea that we're talking about. I've got a shift here. So David knows this is a pipe dream. This whole concept of walking in the truth is a pipe dream unless my heart gets wrapped around it. And it becomes personal. So what does he mean to unite my heart to fear your name? Well, he's basically said along in this text, if if there is only one God, then my heart cannot be divided. Right? I mean, hasn't that what he said? You are God alone. There's only one. That means my heart can't have multiple gods. It can't be divided. It has to be orientated toward you only. It has to be my primary concern. Because what what I love, I worship. And what I worship is ultimate to me. And so one of the commentators said this, the the Lord's singleness needs to be matched by my undivided commitment. If he alone is God, then my heart needs to worship him alone. So I need to love him as ultimate. So John Calvin said about our hearts, and we all know this, that our hearts are like little idol factories. We're constantly producing something else to love and worship, to pursue and desire and crave. This is constant. So uh, we're desperate, we're needy, we're insecure, we're petty, we're continually fearful. And so we all attach our hearts, desires, and cravings to anything that will meet the need. And whatever it is, listen to this, whatever it is, whatever your heart clings to, is your God. Because you're worshiping it. Now, so he's, so train my heart. What is, what is David going to say here? Train my heart to be more oriented toward you. So in verse 12, this is what he's going to say. So here's what David's going to do to see this happen. I'm going to give thanks to you, he says, with my whole heart. Not a part of it. I'm going to look to you solely and see all of the provision. Everything, all your goodness, all the provision of who you are, I'm going to give you thanks for it because I know I wouldn't have it without you and I want my whole heart oriented toward that. And I'm going to glorify your name. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live with you as my sole front purpose, the center of my being. So he's going to declare it. Now listen, Derek Kidner in his commentary on the Psalms says this. This is not just a prayer, just just verbalizing praise. This is is David saying, I'm going to reform my heart because I'm uniting my heart and I want my whole heart to be oriented toward this. So this is forming the right habits in my heart. And then James Smith in his book, the one I mentioned earlier, about the habits of the heart, the spiritual power of habit. He says we've got to reframe our appetites, reorient our desires, reshape our loves. And so David is going to pursue it. He's going to operate with God at the center. That's what he's saying. So here's the question. The question becomes, what does make your heart beat fast? What when I, all I have to do is say it and it makes your heart beat fast. 
And so I sort of divide my life up when I think about things like this and I get into one of those melancholy mind meld things uh, into things that are wonderful and things that just scare the pants off me. You probably have both of those. And, um, and just the mention of either one of them, just the mention of them can send my heart rate up. Either for good or in a stressful way. Just the mention of it. And so, when I, and so what, what makes your heart beat fast? Is it uh, something new? Anything? Like you don't know you need it until you went shopping? And you're like, somebody says, we're going shopping. And you're like, are we? You don't even know why yet. You don't know what we're looking for. And you're just positive that you'll find something you've needed. And it makes your heart beat fast to get something new. Um, um, how about uh, the opinions of others? Like you really, it really concerns you how people feel about you. Like if you get a compliment and your heart starts to beat fast. Especially if it's something you're proud of or something you think's true about you. It starts to beat fast. Um, you know, you get noticed for something or you achieve something. You won. Could be anything. Uh, money in the bank. But what about on the fearful side? Get into a crisis. Same thing happens. Like the, f- listen, you don't even have to lose anything today. But if we talk about the thought of losing something today, how many of your hearts will go like this? Just the thought of it. That's where worry and anxiety come in. You're worrying about things that haven't even happened yet. The prospect of something bad happening. The thought of losing something. A goal not met. All those things. And what the psalmist is trying to say is that anytime my heart is attached to any of those things that, and all those things make it beat fast, then my fate is sealed. I'll never be able to achieve any of those in such a way that my heart can finally rest. That's the thing. It just never ends. Because the heart's an idol factory. And so, uh, hear me on this. All these things are big things, scary things, wonderful things. We all have them in our life and we're bouncing around from one powerful feeling to the next in a given day. One minute we could be up and down or down. So I have these moments in my life. Maybe you have them. I I had one yesterday and I I forced myself to think about it in, in light of this talk. Just a little bit of honesty with you. Every now and then, Every now and then, I'll have this feeling like nothing, absolutely nothing in my life is satisfying. Not my job, not my house, 
not my wife, not my kids, not my achievements, nothing I own. And it's like, a, for a moment, I'm like floating in this dark place. It's like a moment when my heart is the most honest with me. And I realize the emptiness of literally everything. And it wouldn't matter what anyone put in front of me. It wouldn't be enough. And that is like a truly scary place to be. But every now and then, if you'll just stop your busyness, you'll know that feeling. Nothing's enough. And it makes us sort of... It can depress you without you even know that thought depressed you. And it can make you angry without even knowing that thought made you angry. That's where it's coming from. And it is a restlessness. The question is, what's going to calm that heart? What's going to fill it? You've got to have something you bolt over to. To help it. Or else you're, you'll attach your heart to something that'll never meet the needs. So I read this uh, a little book. I got it this week. It's called This is Water by David Foster Wallace. It's a really short read. It only took me 15 minutes to read while I was doing something else. That's how easy it is. And it was so utterly powerful. Utterly powerful. It's a speech he gave, 2005. He's since passed away. Um, And he gave this speech at Kenyon College. He didn't have any theological agenda. So I bought the book because the portion of the speech that was quoted, I wanted to see the whole speech. Turns out it's very short, as as powerful as anything I've read. And uh, this is, he comes up with a very profound truth, even though he's not a Christian and he's not pushing Uh, God necessarily at all. You can tell that easily when you read it. And here's what he writes at the end of the speech to these graduating, these bright graduating people. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. He says, and even though he's an atheist, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God of the spiritual nature to worship. Pick whichever one you want, is his thought. It's pretty much anything else that you worship will eat you alive. This is what he says. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. And you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. 
we are worshiping something. You are what you love. And what you love, you worship. So what is it that makes your heart beat fast? What is the one thing then, because here's the question, what's the one thing powerful enough to transform my heart from these lesser loves? Because it sounds like David is thinking, we've got to get out of those loves. Those aren't the things that ought to make our hearts beat fast. How do you reshape the heart? Like David says, pull it together and, you know, unite it, like he says here. Unite my heart. And I love the idea of pulling it together to draw it away from a lifetime of attachments and substitutes for God. And David is saying, it's going to take more than just exercises and habits. It's going to take more than just this declaration and the orientation of my life. It's going to take more than that. And here's what he says. Great is your steadfast love toward me. What's actually going to make my heart change shape? Your steadfast love. Great is that love. And you have delivered my soul from the depths when I feel that love. Literally deliver me somehow from whatever the depths of Sheol. We think of Sheol, you always think of Sheol, uh, the grave. It's the ground. It's the end point. You, it's done. It's the emptiness. It's just the whole idea of being in the ground and in the dirt and, and, and nothing matters now. How in the world do you get rescued from that feeling? From ending up actually like nothing really mattered, meaningless. Is what David is describing here. You love me? See, this is when it really hits you. You love me? This needy, neurotic, self-destructive, egomaniac. You love me? That's right. And every little thing you've done to hide and cover it. All in there. And David is picturing him, rescuing him, that love, whatever it is, rescuing him from whatever this death is. You can die a million different ways in this life. People are not in the ground yet, and yet they're dead. Because their heart's attached to something that's never, ever going to make them live. And so they feel this separation from God. That's what it means, see? To be in the grave, to be, to be rescued from the grave would be to be rescued, number one, from God because he's who I've offended the most. And David is feeling it. I'm rescued from God who has the power to judge me. I'm rescued from myself and the, all that I can do to myself. My self-destructive ways. How many times has God rescued you from a self-destructive way? And so here's the thing. You've got to constantly be in touch with this love and its rescuing effect on your life. Freeing you from the fears and the idols and the attachments that are lesser. So David is describing... Is it possible to come before God? This is the transition. You're sitting in your quiet time. 
And you transition from I read it and I know it to God, I need to sense it in my heart that you really do love me so that I can relax in it as opposed to just be stressed out wondering if I'm good enough for you. When you sense the love, you can literally relax in it. And your heart rate drops. This love is multifaceted. So one of the ways you'll feel his love is when you're going through hell. And you can't believe how it's all falling out against you. You just want to cry out, why? And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, your heart rate's gone really high at the thought of all that could go wrong now. And then there's this, this love breaks into that. So that when you think about God's sovereignty, and you've said it a million times, he's in control, he's in control, all of a sudden your heart feels it. Your heart really knows, oh my gosh, he's in control. And it starts to drop, the heart rate drops. It's that experience. It's a relief. Oh, you knew it. Now you really sense it. Or his provision, like you're just, like all of us are most days, you're without something. You need something. Sometimes you don't even know what it is you need. But you're so desperate that you become greedy and self-centered. And, you, and then you live life on the take. Just anything you can get. And you're, you're the farthest from giving anything you've ever been. Because only you are the only thing you, you are the only thing you can think of. Until God breaks in. And he just releases all that wound up self-centeredness to a degree that rather than actually looking for what you need so desperately, you can actually become a giver of something. Actually be happy, giving. In a way where you just, God, I just fully trust you on this. That's when it grabs a hold of your heart. And that's when it changes you. And that's when, like Second Chronicles says, God comes alongside you. And he's ready to do anything your heart's willing to do. So let me give you this last illustration. that I just can't get it out of my head. Because, and this, this text has just sort of given me a whole new picture for the spiritual life. And then this illustration came along inside uh, James Smith. Because it's either going, you're either going up or down here. So I'm either going to be drawn up by God's love or I'm going to be drawn down to these, these sort of these, these dying a million deaths, you know. Augustine used the idea of weight to show because he believed, he, he saw love as gravity. So if your heart 
Your, your love is like gravity. It's pulling you in a direction. That's what he's saying. And so depending on how your heart is oriented, the way it's weighted will determine which direction it goes. Okay? So he'll say like this. There's a difference between a body floating in water. Your body, when it floats on water, has a kind of weight that can float. But you put a stone in the water, and what happens? It drops. But the water, but, the, but, the, but a body can stay up. He says if you pour oil, like in the bottom of a water jar, what will the oil do? It will naturally because of the way it's weighted, will naturally rise to the top. But if you have a vat of oil and you pour water into it, what would that water do? It has a weight about it that drops it to the bottom of the oil. And he pictures our hearts a a certain kind of weight. And he says, your heart was originally made and weighted to naturally go upward toward God. But because sin got in there and messed it up, It weighs it down, and it wants to come down this direction. And so I'm reading this psalm, and I'm thinking, yeah, God, I need to sense you in such a way that my heart actually gets re-weighted so that it, it naturally goes upward instead of downward. Wouldn't you like that? New direction. I want you to see this verse in a whole new way. You'll never unattach your heart to what you love the most. Next week, we're going to talk about what that means in light of this. Just bow your heads. Father, right now we might be realizing that our hearts haven't sensed your truth in a long time. Our minds have been filled with all kinds of stuff, but our hearts haven't been, haven't sensed it. Your goodness hasn't just come right, like, you know, your great steadfast love, some facet of it that we're in desperate need of today, hasn't come before us in a way that it literally changes our heart rate and thus our lives. So today we may have scattered hearts. We don't, we, we don't even know where to begin to pull them together. Maybe right now in this moment, you could just speak some, some facet of your love, which is so multifaceted, we don't even know. I don't even know how to pray it. I don't even know how to begin to pray for the amount of hearts in this room, what you have to say to it so that it senses something that it desperately needs today. But I pray your spirit will do that, including mine. What do I need to see? Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to God's love. Maybe today's the day to do that. 
it's definitely a day to unite your heart. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.